Number 256, we've been asked to mark, and it's certainly at the appropriate time tonight, we will rise, and uh, if it be the blessing of God, we'll sing that hymn together. It is good, as has already been mentioned, to welcome each and every one this evening. It's our hope and trust that the services will be uplifting and encouraging, and that we each might be better edified to do service unto the God of heaven, perhaps this week, due to something that we've learned by way of song, or perhaps uttered by way of prayer, or maybe considered by virtue of some of the thoughts that we'll look at this evening in our lesson. It would be interesting to make one brief observation, I think, about our radio program. I know that uh, the Colonel, at least, had made a mentioned to me that it had been somewhat difficult of late to pick up that radio station and I just discovered the reason as to why that was as some of you may have known it before uh, apparently due to a storm that occurred several weeks ago now the AM 920 radio tower was blown over and so they were using a makeshift tower at least for the time being until a, a renovated tower could in fact be put back in place and, of course, that's why the signal was somewhat weaker for, for the last uh, few weeks, I, I, I'm certain. So hopefully that might either be rectified by now or perhaps at least in the near future. And so, again, AM 920 will be back on the airwaves with the same strength maybe that it was uh, not too long in the past. As we do, though, continue to pray for and think about the success of that program, if you do have opportunity to tune in and listen to it, I believe you'll be encouraged and benefited by being able to do that again at around 10 after 10, after the 10 o'clock news on Monday through Saturday. We have been, of course, on Sunday evenings looking at the book of John, following the pattern of our young people as they're studying for the Bible Bowl and making preparation with diligence as, uh, as they make ready for that event. And we have been trying to study along with them, at least in our sermon times on Sunday night, and to also strive to learn more about that fourth of the gospel accounts of the New Testament. We have, of course, during the course of those studies, learned any number of things already about the Christ. We have seen His divinity set before us in so many ways. He has shown us His mastery over quantity, for instance, in the feeding of the 5,000. He has illustrated His mastery over the laws of nature by walking on the water. We have seen, in fact, His personal interest in every individual, be it a woman taken in adultery, or be it a man, a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. The Lord had a, a very clear and concise interest in each one. And we've learned He has that same interest in us. He wants that which is in our best interest, both here and, of course, in eternity. And tonight, as we look at an episode from the 11th chapter, we will come face to face with, face to face with His interest in matters that are truly of eternal import. It is with regard to those matters I'd invite your attention with me tonight to that set of verses from John 11, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 11. So a little over a chapter we'll look at tonight. And of course, the central feature of that chapter will have to do with a family with whom we're very familiar. There are three members to that family. Their names are Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to the 11th chapter of John. And let's look at a few of the points historically set before us. And then, as is our custom, we will, of course, see if we can understand some lessons that will be of great benefit to you and me after having looked a bit about the text itself. The first verse of chapter 11 opens with the interesting mention of a little village known as Bethany. Bethany was positioned around two miles southeast of Jerusalem, and this was a rather significant city in that day and time. It was positioned, in fact, on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, 
And we're well aware that the Lord often resorted to Mount Olivet for some tranquility and some serenity and a time of peacefulness in which he could harmonize with, in fact, the great God of heaven. As we come to appreciate, though, what begins to occur in the opening scenes of this chapter, we're reminded that in this particular place of Bethany, a family lived there, and again, their names were Lazarus and Mary and Martha. As we appreciate this family that Jesus loved so dearly, verse 5 tells us, they were in fact good friends to the Savior. They were very supportive, it seems, of His missionary efforts, greatly supportive of His work in terms of doing the will of the Father. And interestingly enough, we quickly learned that Lazarus was sick. The sickness was clearly rather severe because he shortly will pass away. But upon learning, in fact, about that sickness, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, sent and in fact informed Jesus about the fact that Lazarus was ill and that he was sick. Jesus remained some two days at the location where he was prior to making his trip, his journey, if you please, to Bethany. And during the course of that two days, the Savior made mention that not only was this sickness for the glory of God, but he also made note of the fact that Lazarus was now dead. Lazarus had passed away, and here the Savior knew it. We might interject one interesting comment, even at this early stage in our lesson. Notice here that the sisters had sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, but the Lord made note of the fact at the time he made the announcements to his disciples that Lazarus was then dead. Doesn't that remind us the Lord knows everything? He isn't restricted by the confines of time. You and I know that it takes time to share and communicate information. The Lord knows it immediately. Might we never think that matters can in fact be hidden or concealed from Him? It is still stated that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, to quote Proverbs 15.3. That particular thought leads us to notice what occurred next. Jesus did proceed to Bethany. And upon arriving, we rather quickly learned that by that point, Lazarus had been dead four days. It apparently took some two days to make the journey from that location to Bethany. And upon arriving, Jesus observed that many were in fact already involved in attempting to comfort both Martha and Mary. But we notice, amazingly, Martha quickly learned that the Savior was on His way, and she in fact went in haste to meet Him. She was so excited about Him coming. She was so interested in conversing with Him, not only about the nature of what things had taken place, but to make statements such as this, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Isn't that a breathtaking statement? To hear that degree of faith in Martha, who upon conversing with the Master would say, If You, Lord, had been here, my brother had not died. Doesn't that illustrate the degree and the fullness of the confidence and faith that she had in Jesus? That had he been here, he could have prevented and would have prevented the very death of Lazarus. But in addition to that point, notice one of the final things on that slide that, that stands before us. Just as surely as they had met outside town, Martha went back and found Mary and informed her that in fact Jesus was now upon his way and in fact, she invited Mary to come also and to meet and to converse with Jesus. Not only had Martha already said, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, 
But Mary makes verbatim the same statement. I've listed for you the verses in which those are found, verses 21 and 32 of that chapter. We can see embedded also in Mary, can't we? The degree of confidence and the degree of assurance that each one of these sisters had in the capability of Jesus. Isn't it rather shameful sometimes that those who profess to be followers of the Master nonetheless seem to have a rather meager amount of confidence in what he can do? Isn't that a shame? You and I ought to have the full assurance in what the Lord can accomplish is anything that falls within the confines of His will, He is able to bring about. Didn't Jesus on one occasion state in that model prayer He enunciated in Matthew chapter 6, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And didn't Job state many, many years previous to that, that no thought can be withholding from thee. Verse 2 of Job 42 all that reminds us of the power and majesty and might of God that things can and shall be done accordance to His will and that things that take place can be perhaps greatly different than what you and I by our human thinking would be willing to say could happen. If one continues on to notice that which comes next, the Lord was touched rather mightily by the grief that He saw not only in Mary and not only in Martha, but also in these townspeople who had come to comfort them. And in the sense that that note is made, we find on this occasion the shortest verse in the English version of the New Testament. That shortest verse in English in John eleven thirty five 35 is simply this, Jesus wept. Here our Savior was brought to tears as He observed these dear friends of His and the grief that had now overwhelmed their heart and in addition, as he saw the way the townspeople reacted in attempting to encourage and to comfort and to solace this family. I would suggest to you that that very aspect of Jesus being touched, doesn't that remind us ever again so wonderfully that the Lord does not position himself in an uncaring role with respect to that which his people endure. He cares very dearly what you suffer what I suffer, the things we endure, what the channels are we must go through. He knows it all. That's why He wishes us to cast our burdens upon Him. Are we not reminded by none other than Peter in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. Might we never forget that caring aspect, the compassionate and concerning aspect of our Savior? As we see that exemplified in Jesus, we find now that the Lord, upon arriving and discussing with Martha and Mary, He invites them to take Him to the place where the body of Lazarus had been buried. And off they go to the place of interment. It was a cave, and upon coming, Jesus, in fact, very amazingly already knew that which would take place. Thus, as we read in verses 42 and following, He has the stone rolled away, and then he simply cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus does. Here we find this individual who had been dead now for four days. And in fact, even Martha had stated that, Lord, there will be a stench or he will stink by this point. And yet the Lord raises him to life. What a tremendous tone in regard to the faithfulness in those who were privileged to witness it. For aren't we reminded in the verses that follow that many believed on Jesus because of what they had just seen?
It is to be noted, though, that not all of them did. Some, you see, still refused to believe. Rather, what they did is went and told the Pharisees about what this man Jesus was doing. And the Pharisees were now, it seems, more confused than ever as to how they could diminish, how they could reduce the influence the Lord was having. Many were beginning to follow him in droves and in multitudes. I think we each could recognize that if we were standing in a cemetery and saw a dead man raised, the same person we'd seen dead not many days before, would we not have a great degree of confidence, assurance, and respectfulness for the power of this one who had accomplished this? And yet, that's precisely what happened. It is to be noted near the close of that screen that there were others who reacted very differently. Those Jews that I mentioned, in fact, the high priest Caiaphas is here in mention. And inasmuch as a rather hastily called meeting took place, we notice Caiaphas prophesied that one would in fact give his life for the nation. And that's precisely what ultimately would happen. Though Caiaphas did not realize it then, he was prophesying about what Jesus would do, giving his life for the welfare of the nation. And aren't you and I still benefiting from his death? The welfare, not as Jews, of course, but as the Israel of God, Romans eleven fifteen, as those who in fact have, following the rule and manner of Jews, following the detailed commandments of the New Testament scriptures rather than the old. We are the very ones described as the circumcision of God today, following the pattern of Galatians 6, verses 15 and 16. Those points perhaps challenge us to see the difficulty that Jesus then had to walk openly among the Jews because the Jews now were out to get him. They had given sentence that anyone was to report where Jesus was and what he was doing so that they could take appropriate action and appropriate measures to arrest him. The Lord now had to be exceedingly cautious about the places that he went and the things that he openly did. That brings us, doesn't it, to the last section of our text, the opening parts of chapter number 11. I'm sorry, chapter number 12. Because shortly thereafter, Jesus came back to Bethany. A little bit of time, it would seem a few days, elapsed between the end of chapter 11 and the opening of chapter 12. As Jesus makes a return visit to Bethany, a supper is thrown to honor him, and as he is here present, Lazarus is one of those who participated in that supper. We one more time see that though an interesting set of events happened, for Mary also came, and this was the same Mary, who in course had anointed the Lord's head and his feet with an alabaster box of ointment. And inasmuch as that had taken place, she proceeded to wipe his feet with the hairs of her head. Oh, the love that Mary had for Jesus the appreciation that she and Martha had for his work. Doesn't all that remind us about the nature of what it was at the expense that Mary went to? The text again says that she used or broke open this alabaster box of ointment. And we're told that it was an ointment of spikenard. We might well wonder what that was. Spikenard was in fact the oil of the nard plant that's grown in East India. And it was a rather precious and expensive ointment that was imported from India all the way to the area of Palestine. And it would seem that the family of Martha and Mary were wealthy enough to have an alabaster box of this precious ointment. 
But notice she chose to break it open, not to use it on herself as a perfume, not to use it on her sister Martha as a perfume, but rather to pour it on the head and the feet of Jesus. The Lord defended her because in witnessing that, some of the apostles, and most notably Judas, was beside himself in anger, it would seem. Why was this wastefulness made, Judas said? This could have been given to the poor. However, John, the inspired writer, quickly tells us, Judas really didn't care for the poor. He held the bag and he was a thief. You see, Judas was in fact the treasury, it would seem, of the Lord and his apostolic company. But Judas helped himself out of that bag. He was an embezzler. He was a thief. And John made sure to tell us that not only those things, but he would finally betray his master. We will learn much more about Judas as we continue in our study. But isn't it amazing that in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, yet again the statement is made, many believed on Jesus, not only because of his preaching, but because Lazarus was in their midst. This one who was dead, who is now alive again. I might submit that upon looking at that sequence of events and that series of matters, what might be some lessons that we could use to aid ourselves in our journey with the Master? Things that might help us today, tomorrow, and the day after that we might be stronger and more mature in our service to God. Let's look at our opening lesson, if you would, that we'll consider this evening. I've simply entitled the first lesson that of empathy. Empathy is such an interesting concept, isn't it? It's such a powerful and such a profound idea. You might be interested to ask, what does empathy mean? To what does that refer? Let me define it if I might. Empathy is simply this. The ability to share in another's emotions or feelings. The ability to understand that which another person is going through. The capability not only to understand but to identify with what another is perhaps suffering or maybe even rejoicing over. What does the Bible say about empathy? And in this text, what are we able to learn about it? I would submit that our Savior exhibited empathy as well as the Jewish people. Remember, here was Martha and Mary greatly in grief over the passing of their brother Lazarus. And we are told twice in this chapter that the townspeople seemingly gathered about them in great interest to comfort, to solace, to lift up, and to help in their time of sorrow. And of course, Jesus, upon coming to the place, it again says that Jesus wept. He was able to identify and his heart was touched by what he saw that Mary and that Martha were enduring. I might ask, are you and I to be people of empathy? Should you and I, by the teaching of the Scriptures, in fact, have a heart tender enough and capable to identify with that which others are enduring? We each, I think, would appreciate the answer to that to be yes. I would invite your attention to some passages, though, that challenge us to think about the way in which that should be exhibited. Returning to Jesus for just a moment, in Hebrews 4.15, it is said there of the Savior that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Are we not reminded that Jesus, it is not the case he cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. 
Do you feel somewhat distraught and depressed? At times, do you feel somewhat overly discouraged by that which seems to occur about you? I suspect all of us from time to time are in positions to feel a bit in despair by what we see about us. Perhaps an excessiveness of sinfulness, perhaps an overbearing and overwhelming nature of what seems to be the pressing need of that which is so wrong. Sometimes the good seems to be so hard to simulate and so hard to encourage. The Lord is able to identify with you. Think about from time to time how few there were that responded to his preaching. Here was the greatest preacher the world had ever known, and yet many were the times that few responded. Many were the times that in fact they were trying to entrap him in his words and were uninterested in the eternal truths that he taught. Do you and I sometimes see that good seems to find the hard way to travel and the evil seems to slide along so easily and so effortlessly? I would submit that it seems it's always been that way, hasn't it? But the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, demands us to recognize it is a fight and it shall continue to be so. The devil shall not make the promulgation of truth easy. And he shall not make the perseverance of that which is right the easy thing to occur. It'll take effort on your part and mine, and it takes an appreciation then of the empathy that we need to encourage others who find themselves down, afflicted, oppressed, beside themselves, or in some way distraught. Consider some other verses that make mention of this matter of empathy. In Romans 12, verse number 10, in the central core of that beautiful message to the Roman brethren, Paul on that occasion said, Let love be without dissimulation, in honor preferring one another. Isn't it amazing to hear Paul again say, The power and the character, let love be without dissimulation. The love that is exhibited is to be genuine. It is to be real. It is to be felt from the heart. And we are admonished as those who would follow the Savior to be individuals of that kind of love, aren't we? Five verses later, in Romans 10, or rather Romans 12, verse 15, we also can see there where Paul wrote that we are to weep with those that do weep and to rejoice with those that rejoice. When there are those who celebrate over some marvelous and wonderful event that has occurred in life, are we not able to rejoice with them? And are we not able to empathize with the celebration that they feel by the same token? Those who are hurting, really hurting, are we not able to empathize with them? Maybe the trouble relates to health. Maybe it relates to the loss of a family member. Maybe it relates to the loss of some other necessary entity in life. Are we not able to empathize, to strive, to feel, and to assist in some way? The Lord had empathy. He wept. Jesus didn't have an uncaring heart with regard to their disposition, but he empathized with them. Maybe you and I, as we walk upon this Christian pathway through life, can seek to help others on their way toward glory by empathizing. Perhaps that'll be no more at times than a tender smile stating, I understand what you're going through. If you need me, please call. I'm here to help. At times it might require more than that. Sometimes just knowing that someone else is praying for them. Sometimes just knowing that someone else cares. That can mean a great deal, can't it? As we ponder the bit about empathy, 
But we notice yet another lesson from this chapter. I simply entitled it that honoring Jesus is no waste. You might notice some of the comments concerning it near the bottom of the slide. Honoring Jesus is no waste. There are times that we each can perhaps ponder and think about the manner in which we assist and encourage the work of God. And maybe we can at times think that certain things are wasteful. Let's revisit Mary's case for a moment. She had in possession an alabaster box of very precious and very expensive ointment. She could easily have said, this is not appropriate to burst it and to use it upon the feet of another. The right thing to do is to save it, to use it, in fact, from now for many years to come for myself and maybe Martha, and to use that in a very conservative fashion in the way perhaps that one would think best. Mary said, not so. She burst it open, poured it upon the feet and head of Jesus, and it was used in that way to glorify Him. How might some of the things in my life and yours fit into that category? Maybe I have a little bit of extra money, or maybe a bit of extra other resources that are able to be used. Would it be right then to simply claim, well, that'd be wasteful to use all of it for the Lord's work? I might submit that it could be the answer would be yes to that. Maybe it would be wise to save some of it. But I am not the judge of another, and neither shall you be in that position. If a person were to choose to use the entirety of it, or at least a significant portion, in the investment of a work for the Lord, there would be nothing wrong about that. What about that poor widow in Luke chapter 21? She only had two mites. She chose to give both, give both of them to the service of God. The Lord, in fact, praised her. There were others, in fact, who st made statements about the littleness with which she was able to give, but yet Jesus said she's given more than all of them on the occasion. Might we be reminded the great compliment paid to her? Can we not think of other examples of those who gave abundantly and yet they were pronounced as blessed by God? Think about one of the other passages that I have listed, if you mind. In Acts chapters 2 and 4, when on that occasion those early disciples sold parcels of land and gave it unto the apostles to distribute to those in need, they were highly complimented, were they not? And that reminds us today that when we sacrifice for the cause of God, be it monetarily or otherwise, that is not to be cataloged as wasteful. It is to be cataloged as a statement of faithfulness and a statement of confidence that the Lord will return anything given in greater abundance. Those things help us see, do they not? That is, the Scriptures encourage us to be good stewards of that which He's given us. That might mean due to, due to the overflowing nature of the interest of our heart that we might choose to give a lot of it, a significant amount of our time, of our resources, maybe even of our monies, to the service of God. Those thoughts perhaps are seen in some passages like these. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, the Lord stated there that when we in fact provide and to give to Him by putting Him first, He will give to us anything that is a necessity in life. And in that particular passage, he especially mentions raiment and food. He promises he will provide that. You and I as Christians never have to wonder 
He has promised to provide that if we will put him first in our lives. Those two lessons, I think, have challenged us to realize the pertinence of these matters to our lives today. But let us come to one final lesson that we'll consider this evening, found in verses 22 and following of this chapter. It has to do with a conversation carried on by Jesus with Martha first and later with Mary. Beginning in verse number 21, the text reads as follows. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? For the remaining part of the lesson this evening, would you focus with me on some of the things the Lord stated in that brief exchange with Martha? Again, in verse number 21, Martha was the first to express confidence in Jesus. If you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. The Lord, in response to her, simply said, in verse number 23, Thy brother shall rise again. And almost immediately, Martha is quick to respond, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Here was a woman, in this case Martha, and even though she did not live under the pristine beauty of the Christian dispensation at this time, she knew full well that there was going to be a general resurrection. Even though the Old Testament had not taught that in the marvelous clarity of the New Testament, no doubt she had heard Jesus speak about it, teach about it, instruct concerning it. And as that teaching had taken place, she was well aware there was going to be a general resurrection. When you and I today pass by or in fact attend matters at a cemetery, one of the things that should pass by our mind is that there's coming a time this place is going to be emptied. There's coming a day every single body here will be raised. There shall be a resurrection. It is for sure that none of us now know the day and the time of when that's going to be. But there should be not the slightest doubt in our mind that it will happen. It is going to occur. It takes us back to John chapter 5, doesn't it? In verses 28 and 29 of that chapter, the Lord there said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. In the same hour, all are going to come forth, the good as well as the bad. And here, as Martha made this statement, I know he shall rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Can we not thus implant in our mind the certainty of that resurrection and to resolve in our mind to live in such a way that we will come forth to the resurrection of life, not into that resurrection of damnation? The matters that are listed here in the conversation only deepen when we take the approach of verse 25. For the Lord then responded unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, Though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
It's clear from that statement that Jesus made that notice he said, though he were dead or though he die, the way the American standard renders it. Thus, Jesus clearly wasn't talking about physical death, wasn't talking about the fact that physical death would not occur. For he said, though he die. Physical death is the allotment of life, isn't it? In Hebrews 9, 27, we still read, do we not? As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Death is an appointment. And it's true that there are many who, due to the fact they've made no preparation for it, should stand in abject fear of what it's going to be. But I might submit to you that there is no fear in perfect love. For is it not said to us in 1 John 4, 18 and following, perfect love casteth out fear? We are, should be of a position then of understanding this promise concerning a resurrection should fill our hearts with tremendous confidence and hope. The fact that we can rise, that we shall rise on that glorious resurrection occasion, and to have been equipped and fitted with immortality in a spiritual body, a body fit for the eternity that it's then going to inhabit, a body that is not exactly flesh and blood like this one, but a body that's terrestrial, or rather celestial in character, as opposed to the terrestrial in 1 Corinthians 15. Those thoughts, in fact, are so beautiful and so profound, aren't they? As Jesus made these statements to us, let us briefly notice then that Jesus was speaking about something far more critical than physical death. There is something worse than physical death, isn't there? That which is worse is spiritual death. That which is in fact far worse is to be spiritually unalive, to be spiritually lifeless. Because after all, one can die physically and be right with God and have an eternity to rejoice. But if one dies spiritually, never making that right, that spiritual death now is in fact perpetual because there's no chance to rectify it or to fix it after death. There is thus no wonder that this same passage seems to mesh so well with Revelation chapter 20. In that chapter of the Revelation, we read about a second death. Notice, not a first death, but a second one. And on that occasion, as we study and read there, we learn that those who are fitted with the garments of heaven, those who in fact have been a part of the first resurrection, will not suffer the second death. Thus, you and I may die physically, and if the Lord delays His coming, all of us will in fact do that. But notice upon dying in Christ, living faithfully to Him, the second death will not be ours. We will be exempt from it. And that takes us back here. Notice Jesus said, He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Do you believe that, friend? If so, you will live your life in harmony thus with what the Lord taught. For he said, He that liveth and believeth in me. If we don't live and believe in him, the second death will be our allotment. And it will be no pleasant time at all. It'll be a time of separation from God. A time of being cast into a place of outer darkness. A time of being, in fact, in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth a place described as that of fire and brimstone, a place described as being in fact so horrible that it is where the devil shall ultimately be 
It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. This very night as we contemplate the resurrection, that brings me to at least mention this. Isn't it amazing how many in our world ponder life after death? They wonder, is there anything after death? If so, what is it like? If only they would open this book. All of the great existential philosophers of the ages have pondered and reasoned and speculated when all that can ever be known about it this side of death is right here. There is not a single person who can tell us of having experienced this, what in fact it must be like. Wouldn't you have liked to have talked with Lazarus? On this occasion, wouldn't you have liked to have sat over supper and said, what was it like for those four days when you were dead? What did you experience? What is it like? The closest you and I can come in this present day is what is said about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke the, six, in Luke the 16th chapter. There, the Lord tells us the rich man was in torment. He tells us that. We have no doubt about it. He also tells us that Lazarus, who is not the same Lazarus as this person, was in fact experiencing comfort. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Which place would you and I like to be? That place of torment, the rich man having died unprepared, or that place where Lazarus was? The description in that chapter is so vivid. It's so dramatic. That rich man wanted his tongue to be cooled, and there was no way to cool it there. He needed Lazarus. He needed another to come. And thus, in speaking to Father Abraham, he pleaded with him, Please let Lazarus come. Father Abraham said, it just can't be. There's a great gulf here fixed. Those on your side that would wish to pass cannot, and we cannot pass there either. I might ask us each to ponder seriously and with the utmost urgency. There is something more important than physical death. It's spiritual death. Don't be spiritually dead. May that be a challenge to all of us. And if in a few moments you recognize that you are spiritually dead, or maybe you're at least spiritually sick. You've allowed things to happen and you're just barely hanging on to life. The echocardiogram, the EKG, if you please, is perhaps barely blinking. You need to make some changes and you need to make them immediately. For you don't know if you'll be here tomorrow. And if you die unprepared and unready, look at what you would have missed. A whole eternity in heaven. As you ponder then this lesson that has talked about empathy, that's mentioned about not being wasteful, that's mentioned also about the character of the resurrection, I might ask us to close the lesson pondering again the matter of the resurrection. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. Believest thou this? If we believe this, we will live our life in harmony with the New Testament teachings. If we don't believe it, of course, we can live any way we want. But rest assured, consequences are coming. There's a day to answer for the way we choose to live now. If tonight you need to respond in faithfulness to that call of the gospel's invitation, don't delay, please don't hesitate, don't procrastinate. You don't know about tomorrow, you don't know about Wednesday or next Sunday, but you do know now, for the Lord has given you this time. And if we could assist you to be baptized into Christ, We'd be happy to do that. If we could assist you to pray for rededication and for strength and encouragement, we could do that too. If either of these things are the need of your life, won't you let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.